News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The moment uh, when it came together when it was when the decision was made uh, with respect to the judicial proceedings and, the, and, and arriving at what's called a deferred prosecution agreement, uh, that was really the moment when we felt we had turned the corner uh, collectively and uh, that enabled the return of the two Michaels. That is the voice of Foreign Affairs Minister Mark Garneau speaking on the West Block with Mercedes Stevenson about the release of the two Michaels. That deferred prosecution agreement came with the United States and Meng Wanzhou, and had, they had only recently started, very recently started negotiations on that, where the U.S. had not been negotiating for months in this case, but then recently decided to take that step. And what did it lead to? Well, it led to the fact that almost three years of arbitrary detainment meant that Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor could finally come home. Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister Mark Renault, as you just heard there, says the federal government's eyes are wide open. Those are his exact words. Eyes are wide open when it comes to China. That is the question that I'm also asking you this morning. What do you think this should mean for Canada's relationship with China? China continues to say that they allow the two Michaels to be released from prison and go home for health reasons. They continue to downplay the connection between the release of the two Michaels and the return to China of Meng Wanzhou. But let's talk more about this now because, you know, we heard earlier Michael Kovrig and his family uh, sitting down there briefly with Mercedes Stevenson from the West Block while Mercedes joins us now this morning to talk more about the case. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning, Simi. Boy, that was quite the conversation that you had with Michael Kovrig and his family. What was it like? Uh, You know, honestly, I think that's my favorite moment that I've had in my whole career because um, we care so much news that is just really sad or negative or corruption. um, And we didn't know for sure whether these two men were going to come home when they would come home, if it could be years more, what kind of um, state of health they would be in. And it was just incredible to see him, to hear his voice, uh, to see him smile. He was cracking jokes. Oh, my goodness, does he have a sense of humor? He's very, very funny, Um, which I sure didn't expect. I mean, just right on top of everything, um, we did not necessarily expect that we were going to have him there when we started talking uh, to Vina and he decided that he, you know, he was ready to stay and he was ready to say a few things. And obviously, they didn't want to do much. He needs time to heal. But we so appreciated that they were willing to actually let us come over and visit with them on the front porch wow. um, and have that little chat. Um, and you could see the absolute just joy and radiance in, in Vina's face. Um, yeah. I have worked with Vina a ton on this file over the last year. She has worked so hard. She has just put her heart and soul into it. And it was so wonderful to see them reunited. Um, And and you could just see how much the whole family, like the love was radiating off of them. It was really wonderful. Oh, that is so true. That's exactly how I felt watching it too. Mercedes, what do we know though about what led to those extraordinary events on Friday? How long do we know how long the federal government had been working on this file? 
Well, they've been working on it since the beginning, but the big question was always the Americans, because the reason Meng Wanzhou was able to leave Canada is that the Americans dropped um, the extradition request. And we knew there was some sort of a deal happening there for months or trying to happen. And initially, the U.S. Department of Justice wanted her to plead guilty on a bunch of things and pay a big fine. She wasn't going to do that. Um, obviously, they, they lessened their requirements. We don't know what exactly led to that yet. And she accepted and almost instantly, like literally as she was boarding the plane in Vancouver, the two Michaels were boarding the plane in China. Obviously, the Americans managed to make a very clear attachment there. And while a lot of experts said this will be enough for the two Michaels to come home, everyone we were talking to on Friday was saying, um, you know, it, it could be days minimum to weeks or months or over a year if China wants to save face. And I had one source saying to me, if I were you, I'd make sure you have crew available on the weekend to tape. Oh, I thought, huh, hmm. like extra stuff? Yeah, extra <laughs> stuff. And I thought, well, this is this is just fanciful thinking. There's no way. Um, and then guess what? 8.45 p.m. we find out. Actually, 8.30 is when we found out that press conference was happening on Parliament Hill with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I literally ran up to Parliament Hill to make it time. Um, and he, he announced they were coming home, and it just shocked everyone because um, it's wonderful news. But boy, does it ever make it clear that this was about retaliation for the Huawei arrest in Canada and that the two cases were linked. Uh, of course, we have lots of questions we're going to continue to ask about how the Canadian government found out this was happening, what role, if any, they were playing in terms of convincing the U.S. to do this. Joe Biden had said, uh, President Biden, that he was going to make this a priority. Obviously, he did that. Um, and, you know, he's taken a tougher stance on China in some other areas. So I'm so curious to find out how the Americans negotiated this um, and, and what role the Canadian diplomats had in that as well, because I think that's a big story to be told. Uh, but I also think that that's a story that uh, we'll find out if in coming days, potentially, yeah. could be longer depending on how much face they, they kind of want to let China save. And of course, um, frankly, for the Canadian government too, it's, it's a big win, but this was the U.S. that negotiated their way out of it. So they won't really want to release details until the Americans are on board with that. Right. You're so right, though. I, f- I have so many questions too about this because I feel like this isn't the end. This is the beginning of a whole lot of questions too. What do we know about now Hmong acknowledged wrongdoing in that prosecution agreement? Did she not? She did. Um, and that, that in itself was a big step because while they'd wanted her to plead guilty and play a fine, she was denying she'd done anything. And as part of this deferred prosecution agreement, which your listeners will be familiar with that term from SNC-Lavalin, yes. uh, it, it means you basically accept certain things to avoid prosecution. And she accepted and admitted uh, that, that she had engaged in a number of the behaviors that the United States had accused her of, uh, but that she was not going to be prosecuted for them by admitting to that. Um, so that was interesting because for all of Huawei's claims that none of those things had ever happened, um, Meng Wanzhou has now told an American court that, yes, she did do those things. Um, she is agreeing to that. So that, that in itself was kind of remarkable because I think the initial Chinese position was very clear and very hard uh, of the Chinese government and of Huawei that they were nothing, nothing wrong was done. Uh, they were not going to back down. In fact, I had the head of Huawei Canada government relations on the show here. He denied um, that there was a link. He denied Huawei had engaged in any of these kinds of behaviors in terms of breaking international sanctions related to Iran and, and other allegations. Um, and yet here you have the chief financial officer saying, yes, it is true, uh, but also managing to avoid prosecution for any of those things, uh, which then in turn allowed us to bring 
the two Michael song. Wow, so many questions still to come. Mercedes, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. That is Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, and of course, the host of the West Block. Now, all those interviews that she did on this topic, including with Michael Koverg and his family, you can find that on globalnews.ca, but please do check out the latest episode of the West Block for more on this story. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, though, we're going to talk about our health situation, in particular, the flu season. Last year, we didn't really have much of a flu season, understandable, given that we had a lot of restrictions at that time, but that is not as much the case this year. So now doctors are warning people that we could see a pretty nasty flu season this year. Number of factors involved with that, but joining us now to talk about it is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Dr. Conway, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So how concerned should we be about this? Very concerned. There are a number of reasons why we should expect a a very significant uh, flu season. Uh, We uh, had no flu season to speak of, 18 cases in all British Columbia last year. Uh, Usually we we have uh, much more than that, several thousand cases, and we'll get back towards normal. So it'll be bigger than last year. The memory that we have in our immune system from having the flu around the previous season helps us to combat the flu as a society. And since there was no flu last year, there is no immune memory left. And thirdly, uh, the vaccine is a bit of a guess. Usually we do this year's vaccine based on what happened last year. And since there was no last year, the best we have is an educated guess. So all of these things will conspire, I think, to make this flu season more significant than uh, many we have uh, lived through in recent memory. Have we kind of looked back at last year and taken a look at the factors that contributed to so few cases? Well, it is the COVID-based public health restrictions that led to a control, better control of transmission of COVID, but also led to an excellent control of transmission of influenza. I think that last year, compared to our normal interpersonal contacts, we were at about 40%. So now we'll be at about 80 to 90% of normal in terms of how we interact with other human beings. So just that in and of itself would lead to a significant increase in transmission of the flu. Okay, so between the 40% of last year versus the 80, 90% we're having now, do we know what the tipping point is in there? Well, it all depends on whether people get vaccinated. I know we're kind of tired of hearing about getting vaccinated. Please go get your your COVID shot. And it's still important to do that, but it will be all the more important to go get your flu shot so that we can build up community-based immunity before the flu season hits. As of right now, there have been no actual reported cases yet in British Columbia. The flu shot will be available shortly. So I would say that as soon as it is available, run, don't walk to get your flu shot after your COVID shot or at the same time as your COVID shot, I suppose. But it'll be important to vaccinate as many people as quickly as possible to mitigate the negative effects of all of the things that I said that will contribute to a very significant flu season going forward. Right. So we know that the flu kind of moves around the globe. We are certainly not the first region to get it. So what do we know about it in the places that it's already been so far? Well, we know a little bit, which is why we've adapted the vaccine based on uh, what occurred in the southern hemisphere's winter. 
in terms of flu transmission. Uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll get it close to right. But this may be a year still of mismatch. And we've had a few of those where the vaccine was mismatched with the strains of flu that were circulating. And this led to an increase in the number of cases that were reported. So it may be that we will get our flu shot. There'll be cases that are mismatched to what was in the vaccine. And we'll be asked to go out there and get another flu shot that's better matched. So we know what to do. We just need to to do it. And it begins again with people getting vaccinated for the flu. So even if the vaccine is a mismatch, then is it just pointless? Does it do anything? Oh, no, absolutely not. It's just less effective. It's not exactly aligned with the strains. And there are ways of engineering new vaccines very quickly to create uh, the match and to vaccinate people yet again. But if no one gets vaccinated, then it's not only mismatched. There's no community-based immunity left because there was no flu last year. So we are sitting ducks, especially in a setting where we have increased interpersonal contact compared uh, to, uh, to last year. And, and uh, the, flu, the flu will arrive. There will be a flu season. And let's try and make it as, as uh, comfortable as we can. This goes to the heart, I guess, Dr. Conway, of how we talked about it. But if only people kept up some of the measures, right, that we have learned during this pandemic, like the hand washing and that kind of stuff, that it would go a long way. Absolutely. We live in COVID world. We've learned a lot as to how to prevent the transmission of respiratory viruses. I don't think we're going to go back towards normal. There will still be some caution in large gathering indoors without masks with people we don't know. And this applies also to reducing the risk of transmission of influenza. So as these measures persist, not a, we're not at 100% of interpersonal contact, 80 is is sort of comfortable. Let's try and stick to that. That will also help control the flu, that plus the vaccine. Right. So what do you think are the most important measures people can take then to not get the flu? Get vaccinated when the vaccine is available. When you are spending a lot of time indoors, try to be as cautious as you can. Large gatherings with large numbers of people for, for an extended period of time probably merit Still, the use of a mask. Washing hands is a very good uh, is a very good measure. And if you get sick, go to the doctor, get diagnosed. Flu and COVID are very similar in terms of the illness. So consult with a physician, figure out what it is you have. If you're sick, stay home, and uh, let's try and get through this together. When do we anticipate that we might start to see some cases? Well, we're sort of entering flu season at the beginning of October, so it's just around the corner. That's a time when the BC Centre for Disease Control starts counting things on a week-by-week basis. There have been some rumours last week that there were some cases, but as of now, there are no actual confirmed cases from a, from a laboratory test uh, point of view from the BC CDC. So it's just around the corner. Let's keep doing the things we are doing now for COVID. Let's make them more comfortable, make them part of our day-to-day lives, and this will help control the flu also. And again, I'll say it one more time. (laughs) When the vaccine is available, please go get it. Okay, there you go. Thank you so much, Dr. Conway. Thanks again. Dr. Brian Conway is a medical director and infectious diseases specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. As you can tell, health officials are worried about flu season this year. We did manage to avoid it. Can you imagine 18 cases? That's all we had last year. And at the time, it was a huge relief. But now, 
We are not going to dodge that bullet this year, and they are very concerned about the impact the flu could have, and they expect it to be, well, a bad one. So keep doing those measures that could help protect you from getting the flu. This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, during the pandemic, it seemed like all restaurants could barely do to survive was to provide takeout, takeout, and more takeout. Problem was, one of the ways in which they were doing that was to use food delivery apps. Turned out those apps, though, were taking a mighty hefty cut. That's when British Columbia brought in a cap on the fees that food delivery services can charge to restaurants. Now, originally that was supposed to expire, but the government announced over the weekend that they are now extending it to the end of this year. So how effective has this cap on the fees been? Has it actually helped restaurants? Well, to talk about that this morning, we're joined by Mark Von Shelowitz, who's the Vice President of Western Canada for Restaurants Canada. Mark, thanks for being here. Uh, my pleasure, Simi. Good morning. Good morning. What did you think of this news? Oh, obviously, it was very, very good news. As we saw during the pandemic, uh, our delivery sales tripled. Our on-premise dining for a full-service restaurant went down to 74% of sales to about uh, just over 39 or 34% of sales. Sorry. So there was a, a really big swing towards takeout delivery. And takeout and delivery even going forward as we recover from the pandemic is going to be a much more important part of uh, an average restaurant sales mix. So this certainly provides uh, some stability as far as those delivery fees and ensures that restauranters can make a little margin on these sales as well. Yeah, that's what I was wondering then. So having this cap on these food delivery you know, fees, has that made a difference for restaurants? Has it actually helped them? Oh, no question it has. Yeah, no, very. it was very much appreciated. We appreciated the government listening to it because before the pandemic, you have to remember, Simi, that, uh, uh, you know, we experimented it a little bit with these third-party delivery companies. It was a good way to, uh, you know, get your food inventory under control and sort of sell some excess stuff. But it wasn't really meant to be a sort of a, a profit center for the restaurant. It was more like you're trading dollars. And at fees at 25 30%, you just couldn't really make any money on it. But what the cap has done, at, at limiting at 15% plus another 5% for for other, other uh, you know, reservation fees, et cetera, it certainly certainly provided some stability and we could actually then cost takeout and delivery meals uh, so that there's a, you know, a bit of a win-win for both of our delivery uh, company partners and the restaurant. Right. One of the things that the delivery, the apps were saying is that, oh, people won't use it as much. Has that been the case or has it still been pretty busy? No, it's been pretty busy. I think uh, they're, they're doing very well as far as, uh, you know, the third-party delivery sales uh, are still going very strong. And remember, we're still in the pandemic and, uh, you know, we also have a labor shortage situation. There's a lot of challenges going on, and, and this is certainly something that we appreciate the government listening to, and it gives us that uh, one little piece of the puzzle to, to help our road to recovery. Do you see this continuing then, Mark? I know that the, the cap is going to stay in place until the end of this year, but do you see this reliance on takeout, that convenience? Is that something that's here to stay? Most definitely. Uh, you know, I think there's a few changes as a result of the pandemic. You know, our industry's always been quick to adapt and, and we're quite resilient. And certainly, I think one of the changes that uh, the pandemic has introduced is a greater reliance on those takeout delivery sales. So we're certainly forecasting that uh, this is going to be a much more important part of the average restaurant sales mix. So, uh, you know, appreciate appreciate this cap. Uh, 
you know, understanding just how important these sales are to restaurants, it does provide them that uh, predictability, at least till the end of the year, that they know they're not going to be facing any big increases in third-party delivery charges. Right. What's it like across the country in other provinces then? I mean, is it similar to what's happened here in B.C.? Yeah, we have other provinces that have similar caps in place. Some of them are temporary, and but it's certainly something that we're hearing from our members that uh, uh, you know we need that uh, that fee cap stability moving forward. So uh, appreciate uh, the BC government uh, doing that, and it's certainly something that we're advocating in other provinces across the country as well. Yeah, it's fascinating though, isn't it, Mark? Because I know that the the apps were worried that if you had a breakout cost there, that people wouldn't order, that somehow they would continue to order it if it was buried in the price of the food, but that doesn't seem to be the case. You know, I mean, the popularity of this uh, is, especially for the younger generations, is is incredible. I mean, they don't mind paying a little bit extra for their uh, for the convenience of those takeout meals, and I think that uh, that push to convenience dining is something that uh, is here to stay. Right. So that is, do you think right across the country, we're going to see more people? Have they just gotten used to takeout? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And, uh, you know, certainly we are encouraging more and more people to do on-premise dining. But, uh, you know, I think during the pandemic, people got into the habit of, of ordering in more. And, and uh, you know, I think uh, as people do return to restaurants, I think there's going to be a much larger reliance on, on those meals for uh, you know, as part of a restaurant sales mix, it's just uh, something that, uh, as you mentioned to me, I think it's a convenience thing that's become a bit more of a habit. So right. uh, as people use it more, I think they're more comfortable with it. And uh, uh, so, you know, this is just one of the changes that I think are permanently changing our industry going forward. And, you know, the other one, which is great, which what the city of Vancouver did last uh, week was the, uh, you know, the the outdoor patio. Oh, yeah. That, that, that's, I think, another I think where I think there's going to be more an emphasis on that outdoor dining experience. I was very popular with our guests and, and with our members. So, uh, you know, that's another example of, I think, a permanent change that's going to happen in the industry. Now, given all the kind of publicity restaurants have gotten for struggling during the pandemic, are restaurants still opening up, Mark? Like it used to be the, oh, yeah, new restaurants opened up all the time. Are people still going into the business? Well, it's a, you know, an incredibly diverse industry. So there's always going to be, you know, some sort of a churn as far as restaurants opening and closing. But, uh, uh, you know, it was certainly a difficult time for restaurants to open uh, recently. But, uh, you know, I think uh, as we uh, hopefully see the tail end of the pandemic soon, that uh, I, I think more people will get involved in the restaurant industry. But it's been very tough. As you know, we've lost more than 10% of our, of our restaurants. And uh, we still have... Uh, the vast majority, we still have 80% of our members that are either still losing money or just breaking even. And for them, it's going to take them a year to two years to, to recover, to pay back all the increasing debt that they've taken on. So uh, so there's still a lot of challenges out there. But, uh, you know, we, we need these measures like this one to ensure that uh, the industry can recover, which, as you know, has been one of the most hardest hit through this whole pandemic. Sure has. Well, Mark, thanks so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure, Simi. Mark Von Schellwitz, who's the Vice President of Western Canada for Restaurants Canada. This is Mornings with Simi. Really interesting press conference going on right now. Annemi Paul is stepping down as the Green Party leader. And she is, well, putting it all out there. One of the quotes from her just now, it has been extremely painful. She said it has been the worst period of my life in many respects. 
Ouch. So, yes, the Green Party continues to make headlines. Anime Paul stepping down. We'll have more on that in just a few minutes. Right now, though, we're going to be checking in with our Raji Sohal because we're going to continue our conversation that we've been having about the impact of apps like Facebook and Instagram on young kids, especially young girls. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, Facebook is hitting back really hard against an extensive Wall Street Journal report, the one we talked about uh, last week on Friday. It's been making its uh, rounds pretty much around the world. Um, Instagram says that the findings that show a strong correlation between Instagram use and teen girl poor mental mental health, um, they're saying it's all blown out of proportion and uh, they want to move ahead with an Instagram that's uh, aimed at even younger audiences, so younger children. Um, but today they announced that the app, that such an app would be on pause. Now, Simi, you and I were talking about this intense scrutiny that Facebook has faced, and I've been checking in with uh, local teens and their parents and trying to find out what they think about uh, the impact on their mental health um, you know, Facebook and Instagram say that uh, Instagram is a safe place, a positive place, that um, it's not, despite the findings in the research, that it's uh, creating a poor effect on, on children and young teens' um, mental health. They're saying that a lot of places in the world uh, have such an effect on people's mental health. Really? Yeah. yeah so they're just <laughs> kind of chalking it up to some generic problem. But I talked to Nikki about it. She's a 12-year-old. She's got uh, siblings that are younger and older. And her mom was very firm about her not being on Instagram. Here's Nikki. doesn't think I should have Instagram. Um, I only have Pinterest as my own social media account. And would you like to be on Instagram? Yeah. <laughs> some of my friends have it. Some don't. I would definitely want to have it. But my mom does not think I should. <laughs> And maybe she just feels uncomfortable about what I, if I'd stumble on to something like an account that maybe isn't safe, I guess. Well, good for her mom, I say. Yeah, Simi. Well, it wasn't hard for me to find teens that are on it. Uh, It was harder for me to find teens that weren't on it, that um, had a stance of uh, like Nikki's mom, Helena, who said that um, she absolutely will not allow her kids on it. And she says predators are not the problem. That's not what she's concerned with. Her mom, Helena, has four kids. She was raised herself in the States and in Sweden, and then they came to Canada several years ago. And since coming here, she decided no social media for her kids. Here's Nikki again. When everyone else is on it, you kind of want to join and you want to be part of it. My mom has talked to me about a lot of things that happen on Instagram. I still, for some reason, want to join Instagram. Um, Everyone's kind of on there and my friends are on there and they're always like, oh, do you have Instagram? And I go. Right. And I just I just say, no, I don't. And they tell me to join it. And then my mom still just she just doesn't want me to join it. You know, I feel like someday she will thank her mom for this. <laughs> her mom's really hoping that that's the case. Um, can you imagine that kind of intense pressure? I'm not going to say on the teen here, but on the mom, on the parents uh, who are being told constantly, well, everyone's on it. Why can't I be? And then, of course, because you know, it's a part of modern technology of contemporary culture. Um, there must just be such an intense pressure on parents to just say, finally, yeah, okay, everyone else is on it. I don't want you to not just feel left out, but I want you to know what's going on in the world. 
uh, Helena, her mom, still does not care. Here is Helena. I would definitely say um, more than the predator aspect, aspect, which is always there. I mean, it is, it's all about what she's seeing and how it's affecting her. Every time she has sneaked on to like a social media that she shouldn't be on or TikTok, every single time it's someone who I'm completely uncomfortable with in the way they talk, in what they're saying, in the way they look. Everything about them is so fake and so too much. Um, it's disturbing. So I, I've already seen a little piece of where she would be in what space she would be if she were on there by those couple of instances um, when she has kind of stumbled across like on, on, online or, or whatnot. Well, that is one mom telling it like it is. Yeah, Simi. Um, you know, I was talking to so her daughter's 12 and all of her 12 year old friends are on it. And I was talking to her about the kind of filters that are especially damaging to one's sense of self-worth, their self-esteem when they're comparing themselves to other people on the Instagram app. And, you know, they can do things like easily uh, accentuate certain body parts over others or make their eyelashes longer in an instant or make their skin appear perfect. Um, and that if you get exposed to enough of this uh, often enough, you can't help but start to absorb some of that for yourself. And, and when you look in the mirror, you are not always happy with what you see. Here is uh, Helena again. Um, my concern is how changing her personality and her happiness. She's in a happy place. She has been for a long time. I have seen 15, what 15 minutes of social media can do to her, let alone what a lifetime of social media would do. And I know that the parents of her friends who have their kids from age 10 freely on these apps, like no matter how crazy I think it is, like it's insane. My husband always compares it to letting your kid walk on the streets of New York City in, in the evening. Like that's what you're doing when you're letting a young child onto the internet like that. It is so fascinating to me, Raji, because as she said, she's on Pinterest and I know a lot of people who are on Pinterest and love Pinterest. And yet Pinterest yeah. seems so harmless in comparison to something like Instagram. Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to say Pinterest is harmless. Um, but I do think that her analogy there of letting your kid out uh, in New York to fend for themselves is yeah, yeah. It's totally on point for Instagram. Um, you cannot count on Facebook to watch out for your kids, to put controls in there that, uh, you know, help your kids stay safe from all of this. Again, it's not the predators so much nearly as it is just this idea that it can destroy your sense of your self-image, your self-awareness when you are still at such a young and developmental age that just seems, uh, just does not seem worth it uh, for what little yeah. entertainment gain you get out of it. Such a fascinating discussion. Raji, thank you. Thanks so much, Simi. And Raji and I would love to hear from parents out there if they've had this struggle with your kids, talking about it with your kids, that whole social media struggle, when to let your kids on, when to not let them on. You can email me, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Uh, what people need to, to realize is that uh, when I was elected uh, and put in this role, I was um, breaking a glass ceiling. Um, what I didn't realize at the time is that I was breaking a glass ceiling that was going to fall on my head and leave a lot of shards of glass that I was going to have to crawl over, um, you know, throughout my time as a leader. And when I arrived at that debate stage, I had crawled over that glass. I was spitting up blood, but I was determined to be there. I was determined to be there so that the next time someone like me thinks of running and wonders whether it's possible to be on that stage, uh, they will know that it is possible uh, to do that. 
That is Annamy Paul announcing moments ago that she is stepping down as the federal Green Party leader. And let me tell you, she did not mince words in her departure. She didn't take any questions after making that announcement. But boy, did she ever leave a lot of questions behind for the people who run the Green Party. Have a listen to more of her comments. The day of the election uh, and the day, the couple of days after the election, you know, there were just a couple of things that happened uh, that really caused me to, to think about what I wanted next. Um, on the day of the election itself in the morning, uh, the only email that I received uh, from our council, from the president of our council, uh, was an email calling for an emergency meeting uh, to uh, launch a leadership review. And then on uh, Saturday night, only a few days after the election, there was a, an announcement sent to all of the members, including myself, uh, that a, a leadership review had been launched. And when I received those two things, at the time that I received them, I just asked myself whether this is um, something that I wanted to continue, whether I was willing to continue to put up with uh, the attacks I knew would be coming, um, whether to continue to have to fight and struggle uh, just to fulfill my democratically elected role as leader of this party. And I just, I just don't have the, the heart for it. Uh, the election was very difficult for those who have been following. They will know that, um, you know, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that when you head into an election, without funding for your campaign, uh, when you head into an election uh, without the staff uh, to staff your campaign, when you head into an election without a national campaign manager, um, when you head into an election uh, being again under the threat of a court process from your party, uh, it's going to be very hard to convince people to, to vote for your party. Uh, and so there are those who will ask, why did I choose to go ahead in any case? And I can tell you that it was a tremendous struggle uh, to decide to continue. I knew uh, that we were likely not going to do well. And I knew that as the leader, even without those tools that I needed, uh, the first person that the public would look at would be me. Uh, but I chose to continue because of some of the people that are, are standing here today. Anime Paul stepping down as leader of the Green Party. Lots of questions now for the party, the executive leaders of that party, about their behavior in all of this. Sure brings up a lot of questions. Anyway, more to come on that. That is a developing story this morning. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now let's turn to the biggest story of the weekend, right? The return of the two Michaels, their home. Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou is home. So what happens next? Joining us now is Ian Young, award-winning journalist for the South China Morning Post. Good morning, Ian. Hi, Timmy. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So were you surprised by how quickly that all unfolded on Friday? Uh, once the message came through, um, I, I wasn't surprised, but I was very surprised when we heard that a deal had been struck uh, because... You know, um, uh, the judge in Mung's extradition case had been due quite soon to release a ruling, and, and that might have let her go home. Um, so I was surprised that the deal happened. But once the deal happened, I think it was inevitable that she was heading home as soon as possible and that the two Michaels would be heading home too. Right. I thought it very interesting that the comments that she made that released to Canada and then the comments that she made when she returned to China. 
Oh, yes, certainly. I mean, Meng Wanzhou is certainly a patriot. Um, you know, I think you can tell from uh, the, the tone of her messages uh, in Kandahar is that she was trying not to be antagonistic. She gave, uh, she actually praised uh, the judge here. She praised the Canadian government. Uh, she praised rule of law here in Kandahar at all. She didn't mention the United States. Uh, but when she got back home to China, it was motherland, 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 um, which isn't, you know, terribly surprising either. Right. So what happens now? What questions do you have now, Ian? Um, you know, I'd like to, to, to find out a little bit more about what Meng Wanzhou has to say about the DPA. I think it's unlikely that um, uh, that she'll be talking much about it. But, you know, a key aspect that has kind of been glossed over by Chinese media is she did admit to quite a lot of wrongdoing. She did admit uh, to being untruthful with HSBC, which was, uh, you know, kind of the basis of the fraud allegations. The fact that she's now signed this um, this statement saying that, yes, I was untruthful, um, you know, that's, that's kind of embarrassing. But at the same time, it was a very good deal for her because the DPA did not require her to make any other sort of undertaking. She didn't have to cooperate further with the US at all, so she was allowed to go home. So, you know, it's not, it's, it, I can understand why the deal was signed. Right, but that is no small thing, though, is it? The fact that she does admit wrongdoing. No, of course not. Um, but that, that's not going to be played up in China. But of course, that's a, that's that's quite a big deal. Ironically, though, you know, the US case against Meng Wanzhou wasn't a terribly strong one. It's quite possible that she would not have been convicted if she was sent for trial. Now, with this signed uh, statement, that makes the case against her much stronger. She's now admitting, yes, I was untruthful. Yes, I knew why these comments, these statements to HSBC were untruthful. And she also admits that Huawei was in breach of sanctions. She admits that because of these transactions, HSBC was put in breach of, U- of US sanctions. So then that's no small, small thing. Um, but, you know, ironically, the statement only exists because the charges are will be dropped right. because that's the deal. What are you hearing about how this unfolded? Like, how did this logjam break in recent weeks? Well, we've been hearing whispers since last December that there, were, there, there was going to be a DPA or a DPA was in the works. But I'll, I'll be frank, um, you know, I didn't expect this deal to be struck before um, uh, just Madam Justice Heather Holmes uh, had released a ruling that would have released her anyway. So I was quite, I was surprised, frankly, uh, that the deal happened when it did. Really? It, yeah. It, well, I mean, because... Because there was a chance she could have got she could have got off scot free in only a month or so, you know, when this ruling came. So what was the benefit for her? It could well be that the, the political times were right, that all of the political factors had lined up. You know, the Canadian election was behind us. The Americans were happy to sign this deal and get it done as soon as possible. But I was I was quite frankly surprised that it happened when it did. Uh, the fact that everything unfolded very quickly afterwards, I didn't find terribly surprising. Right. The fact that the Americans, though, did seem to get on board with that, I was a bit surprised by that because I know they had resisted this for a long time, had they not? Well, you know, possibly. We don't know. I don't actually know what was going on behind the scenes with the with the Department of Justice. But, you know, we've got a new U.S. administration um, since this case started, of course. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite feasible that, uh, that Joe Biden has a very different take on all of this. The Justice Department is a different place now. And, you know, it could well have been that the assessment was that they might not have been able to wring much more out of this, right. that... Um, you know that Meng Wanzhou could have been put on trial, and she might have she might have been you know uh, acquitted. I mean, that's not beyond the realm of possibility. I think that's probably the likelihood, in fact. 
So I've seen some assessments here where people, you know, some experts think, oh, China lost face here because they are admitting that they were, this was a tit for tat situation. But what do you think of that? Uh, no, China's the winner here. You know, I mean, look, China doesn't particularly care how it, how it is perceived globally at the moment. It certainly doesn't doesn't care how the Canadian Twitterati perceives this. Meng Wanzhou flew home to great fanfare. There was a red carpet welcome for her. She was picked up in a gold van. Uh, there was wall-to-wall coverage on Chinese state media for hours celebrating her arrival. There was a, a 500-metre skyscraper was lit up saying, welcome home, Meng Wanzhou. Okay. This is perceived in China as, as a huge victory. Wow, amazing. All right, Ian, thank you so much for the assessment. Thanks.